This episode is sponsored by NAGAP, the Association for Graduate Enrollment Management. Each April, NAGAP hosts the GEM Summit, a four-day dynamic event designed to inspire, encourage, and empower graduate admissions and marketing professionals with new ideas, new insights, and new friendships. Whether you're brand new to GEM or a seasoned professional, we invite you to attend this year's summit from April 22nd through 25th in sunny Orlando. For more information and to get 10% off your conference registration, head on over to www.nagap.org and use the code Enrollify at checkout. Welcome to the Enrollify podcast. My name is Zach Buzicruz, and I have the privilege of being your host today. And today I am chatting with Katie Bizak, who is the Associate Director of International Enrollment at Rochester Institute of Technology. So welcome to the show, Katie. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. Katie, I would appreciate if you would just start by giving our listeners a little bit of insight into um, you, your role at RIT, and a little bit about how you all are structured. Sure. So my position, again, is Associate Director of International Enrollment. Um, in that position, I am responsible for directing our outreach and recruitment throughout South and Central Asia specifically. So I spend a lot of my time, the majority of my time actually, in India and countries like Bangladesh and Nepal, um, doing some work in Pakistan and Sri Lanka as well, Kazakhstan, uh, countries around that area. Uh, at RIT, we have recently gone through a little bit of a structural change, which has been a very positive um, thing so far. So until this past August, I worked in the Office of Graduate Enrollment, and I was one of three international recruiters who traveled internationally and worked with both undergrad and graduate students. The majority of our work was done in recruiting master's and PhD students to RIT, just because of our location in graduate enrollment and because of the demands that RIT has for graduate programs. Uh, but in August, we branched out and have created a new Office of International Enrollment. We hired a new director, and now we have a team of four who are focused specifically on international enrollment at both the undergraduate and the graduate level. So we are territory-based. Again, I'm South and Central Asia. I have a colleague who is Southeast Asia and China primarily, and then we've got somebody in the Americas and another person who's Europe and Africa. So we split that up and, again, split our time between undergraduate and graduate recruitment. Uh, for me, so far, I mean, it's been a couple of months, but it's been incredibly positive because my job has been much more streamlined, and I'm able to connect with the students that I meet in person, in country, um, and connect with them throughout their application process. So now instead of passing them off to another office, I will be working with them as they apply, as they are admitted, and, and then as they consider enrollment. That's very helpful. Thank you. So, Katie, rem uh, remind me, you have worked in international student recruitment for a while, even before you were at RIT, correct? Yes. I haven't worked at it. It hasn't been a, a very large part of my job, but I've had exposure to it. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I was a graduate assistant in an office of international enrollment and then uh, worked at a college where I was a primary DSO and worked with our international student population there. Um, but it's only been at RIT where I've been tasked with international travel in addition to working and communicating with international students. 
Got it. Okay. So my, uh, my role at RIT, which started as graduate enrollment, shifted to international enrollment uh, in 2016. And so this is my fourth year traveling internationally to recruit students. And I typically travel four times a year. Wow, that's incredible. So you, you certainly rack up those uh, frequent flyer miles, huh? Frequent flyer miles and Marriott points. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what we want to do today is we want to have a conversation about what I'll just call the the reality of international graduate student enrollment in or almost there. So in 2020 and what we're specifically interested in hearing a little bit about is uh, what context you can share, what insights you can share about how international student recruitment, specifically at the graduate level, but feel free to share anything at, that might be relevant concerning the undergraduate level as well, how that is trended in the last even just five years um, at RIT. Do you have any specific insight that you can give us in terms of trends you all have been seeing over the past several years? Um, and then a you know related but second question there is, did you notice any, did you all notice anything specific, uh, any specific event after Trump became president? Okay, sure. So I think in general, RIT has had a pretty strong foothold in international recruitment. We've been doing it for decades um, in specific countries, and, and that's kind of grown and expanded over the years. And we've been really lucky to see long-term increases in international enrollment over the past five, 10 years. And that's because we've had these long-standing presences in countries like China and India, which send so many students to the, to the U.S. Um, but on top of that, we at RIT, being an institute of technology, are very well known for our STEM programs. And those programs tend to draw a lot of students from certain markets. So we have that working for our advantage, for sure. Um, so I would say, in general, our numbers have trended very positively. And... Uh, our international student body has been an important part of our campus community and added so much to the campus in terms of diversity. And to see that grow and um, grow not only in numbers, but in the diversity of students coming from all over the world, not just a couple countries, has been really rewarding. Um, but uh, did I notice any effect you said after Trump became president? Uh, I Definitely did. We did, but I don't think we're alone. <laughs> that was kind of the the cold comfort of the whole shift in the in the market was that um, there was definitely a marked uh, difference in students' perception of the U.S. and applying to the U.S. and some fears out there. I think that impacted application numbers uh, overall and also impacted yield for a lot of programs. Um, I think nationwide we've seen declines in international applications especially in fields like engineering, um, and RIT definitely hasn't been immune to that. But for us, luckily, it has not resulted in a, a lack of enrollment. Um, but the hmm. concern is still there that we're seeing less applications. Um, for the time being, I think it can be said that seeing some of those declines can be accounted for by students who are less interested overall, not taking the time to apply, right? So we're not flooded with so many applicants who are not as serious or as interested and invested in the university, but it's still a concern and it's something that we're keeping a very, very close eye on. If you don't mind sharing this and uh, assuming you're allowed to share this uh, in terms of if enrollment in fact has not declined, is that because you all are admitting students uh, at who, who might have been, who might be a little bit less competitive than students even just a few years ago? Is there more pressure to admit a 
for lack of a better term, lower quality applicant because uh, in order to kind of hit numbers or has that not really been the case? I would say that is a that is that is the challenge of enrollment management is <laughs> trying to maintain our numbers and grow numbers ideally while still maintaining the quality of our applications. Um, that's definitely something we've been considering, and I would say it depends on the program. You know, hmm. we've seen increased demand for programs in computing, computer science, and data science. Um, in other programs, for example, some of our engineering programs, it has been a struggle. And so I would say there has been a willingness to uh, be a little bit more flexible. Um, of course, not dipping far down into any pools. We don't want to bring students to IIT who can't succeed. Um, but I think kind of a shift in perception that applicants have occurred. In terms of what you have heard throughout your travels or even just from stories that your colleagues who traveled to other countries um, might have shared with you, is there what is the response from international student prospects? Are they, uh, as you are all engaging in these conversations, are there common sentiments? Are there you know frequently asked questions or concerns? And what's kind of the reality as you are going to these fairs and or these institutions and talking about graduate education at RIT, what do people, what what are they saying? Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to begin with that. <laughs> um, so, yes, there are a lot of questions about studying in the U.S. in general. I mean, think about it from a parent's or student's perspective, and I try to do that all the time. I put myself in their shoes. A parent, even if a master's student, they're very invested in their students who are applying for graduate school, um, that student has most likely not traveled to the U.S. before, so they're going to a completely new environment. They are potentially investing a significant amount of their family resources and uh, their investments into an education that they're hoping will yield a great career for their son or daughter um, and ultimately have a strong ROI. And oftentimes they're taking loans to fund their education. So they have so much at stake. So there's no... There's no question that they're not going to be very concerned about a lot of issues and asking a lot of questions as they should, right? Sure. <laughs> um, any parent would do that. And I think for them, just the stakes are even higher. Um, to give it a little context, I was traveling during the election season in 2016 when Trump was elected. <laughs> and I remember traveling then and being asked all the time by high school students and college students and parents, you know, like what the results of the election would be. And I said, you know, I can't can't predict the future. I don't know. At that point, I didn't think that Trump would, would take office. But I remember having some distinct conversations with students who were confident that Trump would be elected, and I was shocked. But the point is, the election was getting a ton of coverage um, in India. And I, of course, am speaking, I should mention, from more of a biased perspective of traveling frequently in South and Central Asia. So that's my experience. But I traveled again in uh, early 2017 after Trump was elected, and I was in Nepal and Bangladesh, India. And I, I should have known better, but I still didn't expect the complete onslaught of questions that I received from students and parents at every single event, um, whether it was an information session with other universities, or if it was my own session that I was presenting about RIT specifically, or if I was at a school and speaking with students. Um, they were very, I think, I think they were scared and very concerned and not worried about voicing their, their questions to us and their kind of... Um, 
how tentative they were about coming to the U.S. to study. And that's because Trump, I mean, he had barely taken office, but he had made his, his views about immigration policy really clear during that time. And so they were really concerned about what was going to happen to them. Um, and not only that, whenever something happens in the U.S. or there's talk about change in policy or, I mean, for sure, Trump taking office and there's this kind of fear, that information is blown up in the international media, in the newspapers and on news reports. So it is very much in the minds of prospective students. Hmm. Um, so I remember traveling that April to a hold a yield event for admitted students and having some really in-depth conversations with parents who were concerned um, about Trump uh, because the, the questions fall into two areas. I was getting asked questions about the logistics of studying in the U.S. and about the potential to work and get a job and be successful because a lot of students are coming to the U.S. because they do want to get that work experience. Um, the ability to go on to OPT and CPT and get work experience is part of the educational expectation that they have when they're coming to the U.S. and they want to do that. And so there was a lot of fear around that if immigration policy would change, if students would still be able to work, if they would even be eligible to apply for an H-1B down the road. Hmm. And I had to have discussions with parents and say that at the time, nothing had changed policy-wise. We didn't see that realistically happening because there would be such an impact on the U.S. economy <laughs> and on our international education system that it didn't seem likely that Trump would do anything um, anytime soon. But, of course, it's hard to predict the future. The other set of questions that I got from parents was more about their student safety. Again, they're sending their, their child halfway around the world, and they wanted to know if their student would be welcome on campus and would they be safe. We were They were sending their kids to a country where we had just elected a Republican president who had um, interesting views about immigration and had just instituted a travel ban. So they were concerned that people in general wouldn't be welcoming, welcoming to an international student. Um, today, I think that that still exists. I think the top concerns for parents and students coming to the U.S. is safety and a feeling of being supported and welcomed on campus. Um, I have definitely, since 2017, luckily, seen a decline in the questions that I get about Trump. And the hmm. questions that are happening now about uh, the election and the upcoming um, campaigning uh, time period, which is natural, but less questions about Trump, especially over the past year, um, so that has been a positive thing. Like I think that concern has died down a little bit. They've seen that nothing has really changed uh, yet. But at the same time, I stress that anytime there's a little bit of buzz in the U.S. about a potential change to OPT or a potential change to CPT, they are reading about it, reading about it in the media and in the newspaper, and then they are sending and asking questions about it. So it's definitely out there, and it's challenging, and you do the best that you can to provide good answers to questions that you may not know the answers to long term. Sure. And I want to press into that a little bit because one of the things that it sounds like based off of what you just shared and some of the other things that we've read recently and other people that we've, that we've been speaking to on this topic that kind of at, at the core of this challenge was really about Trump's rhetoric more than it was about actual policy, at least at that you know, point in time. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about, uh, from your perspective in your conversations, do you, one, do you agree that that is more or less true? And then two, how have you, 
how has RIT's um, approach to helping kind of clarify um, these sorts of questions? What what approach have you all taken to be able to do that? In other words, how are you communicating that beyond what you might have seen from a news clip? This is actual. This is actually reality. Um, and then also, could you talk a little bit about how exactly things? From, from an international perspective, from an international media perspective, end up getting a little bit blown out of proportion, especially in Southeast Asia? Sure. So I will start there. Um, I think, again, it's it's understandable that it would be blown up in, this, in the media in, in those parts of the world because they have been historically sending huge amounts of students to the United States. Sure. There are so many students in those countries looking to study abroad and they're wanting to do that to get a better education, improve themselves, potentially um, work and live in the country they're studying and or come back to their home country and better their their environment. So they're so invested in international education themselves that it, it is a big news item for television and press. Um, and it was interesting to me. I, I have a couple uh, university partners and agent partners throughout those countries who will regularly send me news clippings. Um, huh. Sometimes it's, it's just not the way I, I want to start my morning, you know. I, I have a cup of coffee, and then through WhatsApp, I get a news article clipping about how India MBA applications are on the decline or <laughs> whatever the case might be. So whatever they pick up on, they really are um, blowing it up. And I don't think that it's it's a negative – I don't think it's trying to intentionally hurt the U.S. and our international enrollment, I think they're doing the best that they can to provide information to their population so they can make informed decisions. But the problem is is that a lot of the articles are not based on fact or action. Um, they're based on speculation or things that have been discussed in the U.S., but there's been no action behind it. Um, or things have changed maybe slightly, but not in a way that would impact a student's ability to take a curricular practical training during their master's program or work in the U.S. after they graduate. Those opportunities are still there. But if there's a perceived threat to that or any kind of discussion uh, in politics about something that might happen, there are so many articles and news stories that, that just talk about it. And so it's constantly, um, constantly there. And international students are very much exposed to that on a regular basis. So it's no doubt that we, that we get questions. We'll jump right back into the conversation after a quick message from this episode's sponsor. Six years ago, I stepped off a plane in beautiful San Diego, eager to experience my first ever NAGEP Gem Summit. I wondered whether or not this would be like every other industry event I had been to. Would I actually learn anything new? Would the networking socials be awkward? Would I make the mistake of choosing that one session where the presenter starts with a lame icebreaker? Now, quick disclosure here. I was an exhibitor at this event but this made me all the more skeptical of the conference's value. I will never forget the feeling of the welcome reception on that first night. I looked around and I saw folks from large public institutions that were decentralized, meeting and swapping stories with folks from small private schools that were centralized. The energy was palpable. The next morning, the workshop sessions commenced. They were deep, they were tactical, and they were transparent. There was nothing shallow or fluffy being preached. And the keynotes? They weren't just inspiring, but they were timely and genuinely helpful. The best part about the NAGEP Gem Summit, though, is the community. You will be welcomed into a network that feels more personal than professional. 
You will be listened to and you will be understood. You will be motivated by colleagues who will go over and above to understand your context and how to help you realize success within it. For more information on this year's GEM Summit at Universal Studios in Orlando, and to receive a 10% off of conference registration, head on over to www.nagap.org, that's www.nagap.org, and use the promo code Enrollify at checkout. I hope to see you there. Do you think, and you know, I know that it's it's really hard to answer this question, especially when you're interlacing complicated, you know, political rhetoric um, into into this reality. But do you think that there's been, even in the past two three years, uh, a change in the perception of value from you know the international stage of pursuing graduate education in the U.S.? I don't believe so. No. I don't think there's been a change in the perceived value of a U.S. degree. I still very much think that the U.S. is viewed as a leader in education, especially in graduate education, because we have so many research opportunities and we have innovative degree programs that students can pursue, and that's not available all around the world. We also have so much diversity in the institutions that we have in the U.S. We have the capacity to bring in many international students, and they can choose a university that's truly a best fit for them. So I don't think that the quality of U.S. education is being questioned so much. Um, we, we continue to be the top post of international students globally, so that's pretty clear. But I just think that there are so many other factors that students are considering right now mm-hmm. that U.S. isn't the clear option. I think it used to be U.S. is number one. That's where I'm looking first. That's where I want to study. And now students are just much more aware. They have access to a lot of um, online platforms where they can search and compare institutions. And they're not just looking at the quality of the degree, but they're looking at the cost, location, their ability to stay back and work, or they think their ability to stay back and work might be, <laughs> you know. Um, and then also about the ease of acquiring a visa to stay back if they wanted to even longer in that country. And the competition that we're seeing globally for students from overseas is just growing. So that's that's been a big challenge that I've seen. Um, when I've been I've been traveling and I've gone to some educational fairs, um, some of the fairs that are open to universities from around the world, I've seen more and more more uh, universities from Europe and New Zealand and Australia. They are there and they are actively and aggressively recruiting international students. Hmm. So where students may not have been exposed to those options before or, or had considered them as seriously, now they are. And um, there are countries that offer free tuition. There are countries that are being more flexible about the ability to stay back and work. Um, and that's really had an impact on enrollment and applications in the U.S. too, I think. And would you say then that from your perspective, from RIT's perspective, based off of just you know your reality, that by that logic, the core issue here, right? The if in, if in fact the perception of value has not decreased, really the 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 primary factor here is the president's rhetoric. Or are you saying that is it? In other words, is it mainly political, and or is it also economic? Um, and you know, do are those things related? And if so, how? Uh, I think that 
they are definitely all related. I wouldn't say one is more important than the other, honestly. I don't know. I don't even know that we have data that would really show that. Sure. Um, I think that there's much more competition. I would say that's the main issue. Students are very much cost conscious and there are so many options out to them and they're weighing all those factors very carefully. And I don't think that the political rhetoric in the U.S. has helped us at all. Sure. If that kind of answers the question. I don't know what the, um, what the number one factor would be. It would really depend on the student. Um, but then, you know, you look at what other countries are doing and how they're benefiting from this. Yeah. That's another piece of it, too, is that the U.S. is doing very well and, and um, Trump was elected and that had some impact on it, for sure. I'm sure students were concerned about that. Obviously, I mean, obviously they were. But other countries are capitalizing on that and recruiting more aggressively. Um, in 2017, after Trump was elected, Canada saw record enrollment, international enrollment growth. Um, Germany's enrollment increased. Australia increased by, like, I don't know, 13 15% or something. So they were totally getting this advantage of the students who were not coming to the U.S. and who were considering other options. Um, and it's just a, it's a tough global market. I think every country is feeling it, to be honest, um, and trying their best to make their country seem like a best place for international students to go and study. So maybe a, a fair way of uh, thinking about this is that one of the key one of the key effects of the quote unquote Trump effect has actually been that it's opened the stage. It's oh, it's widened right the gate, and more and more players are now able to play in a market that is maybe at least perceived as a little less competitive than it was traditionally. In other words, maybe they have a fighting chance. Maybe these European schools that used to not show up at this, you know, ex international graduate fair are now actually there because they realize that they might be able to compete with U.S. institutions in a way that they historically have been unable to do. Yes, I think that's a beautiful way of saying it. Like it really opened the doors for other countries to come in and sweep up a little bit and maybe just try some new initiatives to see where what they could get. And it certainly worked for Canada. <laughs> I mean, Canada is, you know, the closest to the U.S. that you can get. Um, very welcoming country. Uh, they were looking to grow their international enrollment anyway, and that was the perfect opportunity for them to do so. I'm curious in that vein, if this is the reality that we're living in today, how have you all, especially over the past, you know, one or two recruitment cycles, how have you all changed strategies and tactics um, in light of this more competitive stage? I would say fundamentally a lot of our recruitment strategies have remained similar. We're doing a lot of the same work, but trying to diversify uh, the outreach that we're doing. And, and I think a huge piece of successful international enrollment is personal connection. And so providing international students that you've met or maybe that you haven't met but who have expressed interest in your university through an inquiry form or, or uh, outreach um, giving them the, uh, an opportunity to connect personally with either a staff member 
or a current student or even an alumni. And that's something that RIT has worked on a lot over the past couple of years is kind of tapping into those networks that we have already, these current students and alumni um, who can help us attend different events around the world, who can also do personal outreach and call students and email them and make the experience much more warm and welcoming. Um, also, profiling and sharing stories of successful students at our university who have come to the U.S., who have been able to intern, or um, RIT has a cooperative education program, right? So if students can come and they can work full-time and get that experience, demonstrating that success to prospective students has been really helpful for us because it gives prospective students an idea of where they could potentially be and, and shows that there are students who are successful in your university. We've also participated in the You Are Welcome Here campaign, which was a campaign um, that was designed to showcase different universities and um, just generally send a welcoming message to international students at large. And so we've been sharing that with our, our marketing collateral and just sending that message that universities and colleges are very welcoming and, and generally love having international students on campus. Um, I would say another strategy for us that has been uh, helpful has been investing more in digital marketing campaigns and just trying to reach prospective students in new ways, kind of meeting them where they are. So using social media platforms, which ones are they using in their country? Um, we've been really successful in China using WeChat and Weibo and connecting with students that way uh, in their language. And again, just providing them the opportunity to connect with us when they want to and how they want to. Um, so that's been a big focus. I want to go back. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's super helpful. And I appreciate that that context. I want to go back to something you were saying earlier, Katie, about the fact that, you know, one of the things uh, in these conversations that you're having with students um, is that in the past year or so, I believe you said there Trump's rhetoric may have been or, you know, maybe a little bit less of a barrier to entry than it was a couple of years before. Um, why do you think that is? And I'm, I'm basing that off of your, the, what you said about in conversations with prospective students, he just comes up a little bit less. So why do you think that is? I think it's been a couple of years since Trump was elected and that was definitely fresh in everybody's mind. So when I was traveling in 2016, 2017, I got asked about it all the time. <laughs> um, but it's definitely the attention kind of died down and it died down because things shift and people forget or have kind of talked it out, um, but also because nothing did change policy-wise for us. So I think that students were able to begin considering the U.S. again and not thinking so much about the, the threats that a Trump presidency might cause to their ability to work or stay back in the U.S. Do you think that there was more, and you know, I, I don't know that you all would have any data on this, but do you think, too, that there were more feedback loops from uh, current international students studying in the U.S. saying, hey, guys, you know, hey, you know, friend back home, this isn't actually as bad as everyone is saying that it is? Or do you guys have any, uh, any even if it's just a story you could share about that sort of feedback loop happening? Or uh, to your knowledge, is, is nothing like that actually actually going on right now? So I think, first of all, that's definitely happening, right? Word gets around and spreads like wildfire, which is part of the reason that anything happens here. It's blowing up in the media <laughs> around the world. And, and certainly current students speak with 
other students from their home countries who are considering um, applying, and there's conversations happening through social media platforms, um, through friends, and just word of mouth. And so I definitely think that has played a part, and I think in general that has probably worked in our favor. And from an RIT perspective, I can say that we have tried to utilize that and harness that power a little bit by hiring a team of graduate student ambassadors who have been able to proactively outreach to our inquiries and our applicants and offer to answer their questions and give students who are thinking about coming to the US the opportunity to ask questions that they might not ask of me, you know, or another administrator or admissions counselor. <laughs> um, so I, I definitely think that has that has worked in our favor. And I, but again, it's everybody has an individual experience, right? Some people have better experiences than others. So you can't control what is being said. You can just be there and try to be a part of it and understand what the conversation is looking like. Sure, that's that's super helpful. I have two final questions for you. The first one is, what, and you've touched on this a little bit, but are there any other market factors that you think are impacting international graduate student recruitment right now beyond the Trump effect? I mean, there have been other factors for sure. I mean, changes in uh, currency values um, that can impact the students' ability to pay and can make our tuition cost exponentially higher. Sure. Um, so that could be a factor. Um, but I think, again, it's just that there is increased competition. And I have talked multiple times during this chat about global competition, but the reality is that the competition is is higher domestically too, right? We're seeing the number of high school graduates begin to flatline, and we have to, as you know, just a group of universities and colleges, make up that difference somewhere. And I think it can be um, kind of a go-to solution to start looking for those students internationally. So there are more universities in the U.S. recruiting internationally, as there are more global universities recruiting, and um, the the populations of students abroad who are looking to study overseas, you know, and come to the U.S. and go to other countries may be increasing. But the reality is that we are going to have our work cut out for us over the next couple of years to continue to grow our international enrollment. And I say we kind of as a general cohesive we <laughs> in higher education, not just at RIT. That's super helpful. I'm curious for this, this final question here around what sort of resources are available that listeners to this podcast who might need some new inspiration for strategic ideas, tactical ideas for how to recruit graduate international students in a increasingly competitive market, a market that is a, a, you know, a reality rather that is still grappling with Trump's effect and what that actually means from a policy standpoint, what sort of communities and or resources uh, digital or or otherwise, uh, would you recommend for somebody who is working in international graduate student recruitment to tap into? Sure. Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Um, and I guess I want to start off too by saying that you know it's it's a challenging environment. There are a lot of resources. We are all in the same boat, and I appreciate that Hired is such a supportive community. Um, and I personally am optimistic about this. So I think that things will continue to improve, but we do have to be resourceful and continue to invest in recruitment and yield efforts. So where can we find those resources? Um, what can we do? 
I would say there are a ton of free resources out there. Um, the U.S. State Department, for example, has fact sheets that you can download uh, about countries if you're looking to pursue new markets or you just want to see what the general um, movement looks like. Uh, there's a ton of resources available through NAFSA, a professional organization. Uh, they have educational system guides that can help you better understand, especially if you're starting from scratch and just beginning to dip your toe into international recruitment and enrollment. Uh, West has sessions that you can attend that are professional development, educational sessions. And then I would also recommend my personal favorite resource, which is Education USA, uh, run by the State Department, funded. Their goal is to help increase mobility, um, between the world and the U.S. and bring more students here. Um, they're unbiased as far as recommending different institutions, but they have a huge wealth of resources that um, universities can tap into for free and amazing advisors and counselors who can help pave the way a little bit. Um, lastly, I would be totally remiss not to mention uh, other professional organizations. I'm on the governing board of NAGAP, which is the National Association for Graduate Admissions, sorry, Graduate Enrollment Management Professionals. And uh, conferences like NAGAP or um, IACAC, um, they can be just a great way to connect not only with other higher education professionals, but with um, vendors who can be helpful and uh, for a conference like IACAC with high school counselors who are actually in the ground uh, on the trenches working with students. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. We'll probably have to summarize all of those uh, those resources in written format too, so that people can uh, click links directly to these these resources and these websites and to learn more about these associations. So thank you very much for that. And thanks for participating in this conversation, Katie. It was fascinating. It's really interesting to hear a little bit more about RIT's reality, to also just hear your insights into what's really happening here. And um, I love that you're optimistic. We are as well. Hopefully uh, higher ed, especially those at, at the graduate level, can kind of adopt some of that optimism. But thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking with you more about this topic um, at a later point. Yeah, thank you so much. Great conversation. And I look forward to connecting with you and other international enrollment professionals in the future. Uh, there's a lot more to come. Thanks. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to, digital resource for enrollment marketers out there. Music